Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends. You are listening to the 87th episode of the Business for Good podcast. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. The 86 back episodes are all pretty much evergreen and also all riveting, so go check them out. We've got tons of great content with startup founders, business titans, authors, politicians, and more. Also, I want to give a quick shout out here to one listener, Alex in Oakland, who not only has been enjoying the show since its inception four years ago, but also writes me pretty much every single episode to let me know what he thought of it. Alex, I really appreciate your support and your feedback, so thank you, buddy. Now, if you've been listening to the show for some time, like Alex, you probably know that replacing animals in the food system is a topic very close to my heart. While the meat and egg industries in the grand picture have still pretty much been largely unaffected by plant-based competitors, that's definitely not the case in the milk industry, where the explosion of plant-based milks has very tangibly cut into demand for cow's milk. Gone are the days when almond milk and soy milk were for vegans. Now they are for everyone. But just a few years ago, a new entrant into the plant-based milk world emerged. In 2015, oat milk was far less than 1% of the plant-based milk world. In fact, people hearing the term oat milk were probably far more likely to think they had heard somebody talking about goat milk rather than actual oat milk. Not anymore. Thanks largely to one company, Oatly, oat milk is now the bell of the alt milk ball. After three decades of toiling away far out of mainstream consciousness, Oatly has boomed, leading to its mega successful 2021 IPO. But wherever there is success, others are sure to follow. While Oatly had the oat milk sector primarily to itself back in 2017 when it started out in the U.S. market, today there are numerous competitors, including oat milk lines offered by major dairy companies. No longer is oat milk synonymous with Oatly, and Oatly has faced real challenges trying to scale up. Their stock price has even fallen by 80% in recent months. So, how is Oatly going to stand out, fight off competitors, build new production facilities, and expand into product car- categories beyond just liquid oat milk? We've got their North American president, Mike Messer-Smith, here to tell us all about it. Mike actually came from the conventional dairy industry himself and is now all in on the cow-free milk world. He's got a very interesting story to tell, both about his life and Oatly's trajectory, which I will let him tell you all about right now. Mike, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thanks so much, Paul. My uh, my pleasure to be here. Excited to chat. Well, I'm an Oatly consumer, so I am excited. I want to just get that disclosure out of the way before uh, anybody accuses me of, of hiding that. So I, <laughs> I'm excited to be chatting. And before we get to Oatly, though, Mike, you yourself have had a pretty interesting ride to get to where you are right now. I mean, you're a guy who was supervising nuclear reactors for a while and then got into yeah. food industry marketing for companies like Frito-Lay and even even. Bonnie, um, and now you've gone from the dairy industry to the plant-based milk industry, where you've been running Oatly North America for the last five years. So what happened? How'd you go from from nuclear reactors to plant-based milk? It's that that classic career path. It's been been done so many times at this point, it's almost cliche. Uh, Nuclear engineering to oat milk. I mean, it's hard hard to even really cover it too much. I hate to to even ask the question because it's just so overplayed. I know. You've heard it once. You've heard it a thousand times. Uh, No, I mean, I I was – I had the privilege of being an officer in the United States Navy um, after I graduated from college. 
Um, that's how I paid for college. My undergrad um, was with a Navy scholarship and then worked on ships and great teams and traveled all over the world on uh, when I was in the Navy. And the the kind of you know, ultimate experience of that was serving on an aircraft carrier that was stationed out of Virginia um, that have two big nuclear reactors on board. And I was one of the officers that uh, you know, operated the reactor, led a division of folks that that took care of it and maintenance it. It was very, you know, a, a very significant blend of, you know, highly technical plus, you know, results driven leadership. And I think, you know, I knew I didn't want to be a, a ship captain for my whole career. So I got out and I went to business school, but really like the, the appeal, you know, that brought me into marketing and sales were you know, the things that I loved most about my job in the Navy, you know, being able to take information from different sources. Some of it is, you know, data. Some of it is more like qualitative relational pieces, just like we were doing when we were operating the reactor. And then you have to make decisions and you have to drive things forward and you have to lead teams through, um, you know, high pressure environments. And I actually do feel like that that experience um, as an officer in the Navy early in my career has helped me a ton, particularly as you get into the more entrepreneurial journeys um, where there's just so much ambiguity and unknown. Um, the ability to uh, lead, you know, do our best to connect and lead with lead teams and, um, you know, deliver results has always kind of stood me in good stead. So it was a great experience to be honest. And I, I just really, um, you don't, you don't appreciate all those things sometimes when you're in it or see the the future application, you can't even imagine it. Um, like I, I never would have even imagined the word oat milk, uh, you know, 15, <laughs> 15 years ago when I was floating around on a boat, uh, in the Atlantic ocean. But, um, it, it really did kind of serve as a foundation for me in my career. It's, it's definitely an interesting start, obviously, but why then food? So you, you go to, Har yeah. you go to Harvard business school and you're thinking, all right, I'm, I'm right. going to leave from, I'm, I'm going to stop being, uh, you know, a service person in the military and instead I'm going to food. Like why, why food? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, so I think that, um, I liked, I really love accessible mass brands that, I mean, I, I grew up in a small town in Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, I really liked the idea, you know, a I, you know, working in a business and the actual ownership operator nature. Like I, I wasn't going to be cut out for a more advisory type role, consulting, banking. I mean, lots of people are incredibly successful in that. That's just not me. And so then if you're going to be an operator, you know, I love products that are broadly accessible and that regular folks can, um, you know, purchase and afford. And, um, and so food, it touches everybody's lives. Like I, I love food. I love eating. I, you know, I, I love, you know, consuming. I love going to the grocery store and walking around. And so that felt like how the business of food and beverage was always uh, just a huge draw to me. But, but I will say like making that transition, I know there's lots of folks that consider career switching and you know, you're in a technical field and you want to go to something different. It was very, very challenging, even with the, the, I mean, that's the reason why I went to business school, but I applied for probably 15, 20 different internships my first year of business school. And I didn't even get an interview at any of them except for one. I got one interview in, mar in a, for a marketing role in a consumer packaged goods firm. And that was at Frito-Lay. And I am eternally grateful for uh, <laughs> some of those people that saw the potential of some, uh, you know, Navy engineering weirdo um, that he might be able to do that job and and could imagine that it would work and um, kind of took it from there. You know, Mike, it's funny that you mention that you enjoy going to supermarkets. It's one. It's actually one yeah. of 
it's actually one of the things that my wife and I love doing most together. So for like a, <laughs> a, a date night, we will go to the supermarket and just walk the aisles and just look at things. Yeah. She's especially interested in like prices of products. I'm more interested in looking Ooh. at, at the, you know, just the breadth, especially the plant-based products that are out there. And yeah. uh, so it, it's funny like that, for us, it is definitely like a form of recreation to go there. And uh, we, yeah. we particularly like doing it like on like a Friday night. It's like a nice thing to go out and do together. It's also really nice in like travel. Like, I mean, I, I feel like when you're, uh, you know, when I'm spending time upstate New York and going to a small gross, a smaller, like local grocery store, then you go to a massive, you know, like more urban suburban grocery store, you're, you're in a different part of the country. Um, or when you travel internationally, um, it sounds like such a weird thing to do that like, oh, you know, back, you know, obviously pre COVID, I haven't gone on any of these trips recently, but you know, the you're in Paris or you're in Rome and you're like, can we go to a grocery store for like half an hour? I just want to walk around and see um, kind of what the categories are like and some of these products. And I mean, I don't know, you, I, you just have that natural curiosity for things. And I love your, I mean, you're right. Like the breadth of assortment, you know, packaging, you know, looking at the way, you know, different shelves are organized, the way people shop. I even think pricing says a lot about strategies as well. Whether you think sort of thing about accessibility or premiumness, like there's so much, uh, I mean, I can just wander the aisles for hours, which is really annoying. I think to my wife as well, <laughs> but it's a, it's a great thing. That's funny. No, I, it would not be annoying to my wife. She would really love it if I would consent to do that for hours, but uh, <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that we now see, if you were to walk through a supermarket is this exploded plant-based milk section, right? There's just so many yeah. options. Oatly is a major player in that market, obviously, but the company seemed to have come from almost like out of nowhere, you know, five years ago, I think is when Oatly North America even began. Isn't that correct? Is that right? Correct. Yeah, yeah so, seventeen. Right, and, and now it's this like dominant player in the plant-based milk market in in the United States, and so I, I know that there was a big sales boom from the pandemic um, that you know mm -hmm. led to you guys having this very successful IPO in May of twenty twenty one. You guys a ten billion dollar valuation at the time. You know now I think you guys had like close to six hundred and fifty million dollars in revenue in twenty twenty one. You've basically created this entire like whole new sector of the plant-based milk market. You know, before it was like almond milk and soy milk kind of vying for supremacy. And then oat milk comes along and is like, no, actually this is where it's going to be. <laughs> you know, even Oprah invested. So my point is that yeah. you know, a lot of people see this as this overnight success story, but uh, you and I know that it's not an overnight success story. The company has actually existed since, right. since the nineties. It's hardly a newcomer to the space. So for how long has Oli been around and what was it doing prior to all of that time? Like now it's this big brand that everybody knows, but what's it been doing for the last 30 years? I mean, uh, that, I think that was a great summary and kind of trip through time. I mean, we, we are a Swedish based company. Um, you know, so our founder and, and the early team members, you know, as early as the, the mid nineties, um, you know, were looking for, you know, really kind of founded in that, that motivation for how can you create a delicious tasting product that was also um, good for people's health, their digestibility, and uh, was l less taxing on the plant's resources in the process of manufacturing. And so that was the core idea. But for many, many years, I mean, we were just a you know, relatively modestly sized uh, Nordics 
uh, based company, you know, perfecting manufacturing processes, evolving the brand. And I think really you started to see, you know, sometimes, you know, companies need time to grow and mature and then and it kind of meets the moment and the opportunity. And really um, in, you know, about a decade ago, um, you know, early 2010s, the, we had our very entrepreneurial CEO, Tony Peterson, join the company. They rebranded and we really like that was a moment also where the the growing nascent demand broadly in in uh, society for more plant-based options was really starting to explode in Europe. And since then, it's been kind of a, a growth uh, acceleration. And so the company, if you, you can't really have that um, that goal around, you know, creating a delicious, nutritious, uh, nutritionally balanced product that, you know, is an alternative to cow's milk and then just stay in your Nordic markets. I mean, they started expanding into other parts of Europe, the United Kingdom, uh, Germany and Austria. And in 2015, 16, the company made the choice to expand into even bigger opportunity markets with this core idea, um, you know, both in the United States and in, and in Asia. Um, and so, you're right. Like it, when we, when we started in, in the United States, when we were getting just even like the basic infrastructure uh, to get things going, like where and how are we going to make this product? Uh, like who, who's going to be on this team? Do we even have an office or a place to go to organize things? Like none of those things existed um, at the beginning of 2017. I was the, the second or third full-time employee that we had on the team here. And, you know, but we knew what we wanted to do. The mission and purpose of the company has been the same fundamentally since we, we started the journey. It's still the same today. And well, what, what, you know, what would you say, kind of, what would you say, Mike, that is, what is the, what would you say is the purpose and the mission of Oatly? Yeah. So, I mean, what we want to do is make it easy for people um, to have something that's, uh, deli- you know, both a plant-based option as an alternative to cow's milk that is uh, delicious um, it is great nutritionally balanced and the environmental impact of that product um, is uh, less taxing on the earth's resources. Mm-hmm. And so we looked at the food system. We looked at the impact on within that food system on global greenhouse gas emissions. We looked within that about the animal based sector and the contribution of uh, animal based food products, both in dairy, you know, you look in the meat segment, um, and, and about half of the food sector emissions come from this livestock sector. And so if we and furthermore, uh, the digestibility of lactose and cow's milk for human populations of, you know, more than I think it's more than half the world's population can't digest uh, cow's milk. And so if we can get something that is more acceptable and less taxing on Earth's resources, that is both really important as an idea um, for the planet, but also we can create a great business out of it, which is what we've been trying to do. And so we kind of formed this manufacturing process to turn whole oat kernels into liquid um, food that we can then turn into, you know, milks and oat drinks that we can turn it into frozen products and, and all those sorts of things. But that's, that's the core idea across the business, regardless of market. And yeah, I mean, the United States, when we started, we were, you know, oat milk was a rounding error. It was less than 0.1% of the entire category. No one had ever really even said that word before. I certainly never had. I mean, I talked to friends and family. They're like, what are you doing? I like oatmeal, goat milk. Like, what are you talking about? Um, and, you know, we just kind of built it, you know, try to be thoughtful, try to move fast step by step and, and, and just 
try to create an impact. Yeah. It's interesting to me because most of the companies in this space, both the plant-based milk and even the plant-based meat space, many of them are reluctant. Yeah. They are reluctant to talk about like the, the problems of animal agriculture in their marketing. Mm -hmm. And Oatly has not only uh, gone after this, but it's from these pretty provocative ads, like saying, you know, it's like milk, but intended for humans, right? So point, point yeah. pointing out that, you know, cows make milk for their babies, not for humans yes. as a reason yes. why mammals produce milk after they give birth. That's, that's not, it's not to give to another species. And, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to me that Oatly has gone down this path with these provocative ads. And I'm wondering how you coming from the dairy industry and Shobani yourself feel about that aspect of the company that you've been working for for the past five years. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that both for me and for our employees, both the United States and globally, that alignment of your own mission and values with the work and the product that you do is very important. Um, you know, the company in Sweden, here in the United States and other markets, you know, we feel like we want to try to provoke those important conversations. People need to think differently about how, you know, where their food comes from, what the impact of their food is the same way that they need to think about that for all many choices in their lives from their automobile to their apparel um, that, that they purchase. And so where we try to take a more, you know, it, it's a balance of, you know, a provocative tone, but also something that is very plain spoken, I think. Um, and that really connects to people with just really like simple statements that, you know, really resonates with people and it, and it provokes the conversation and it makes people think and it challenges some of their assumptions about the way that they grew up and, and the choices that you kind of take for granted. That doesn't mean everybody agrees with us. And it doesn't mean that we don't, you know, have opportunity to continue to grow and how we reach people with that. But I think that, you know, as a brand and company that, you know, both for your internal audiences of your, of your, you know, stakeholders or employees, but also how you connect with consumers that um, kind of, more open provoc provocation of, of the dialogue is really important. And it's helped us to stand out in every market, Europe, United States, Asia, and, and we want to keep doing that. Yeah, you know, it's also... And so for me, I mean, I'm sorry, I was just going to say like for me personally, like I have worked, I've had the privilege of working with like incredible world-class, you know, you know, massively resonant brands, Frito-Lay, Chobani, Nature's Bounty Company. Um, but the intersection of both a topic that is really important to me personally about the intersection of food and climate, and then the ability to put my gifts and talents and effort into building a company that is um, in service of that. Like you, you strive in your career, um, I think, to find jobs where um, you can have that alignment. I think I've tricked myself, honestly, at times in my career. And I have lots of friends who feel this way too of, you know, that you like, well, as long as the money's right, or as long as I like the people, we could be selling widgets and it doesn't really, you know, matter to me, but like, it's just not true. Like all jobs are going to be really hard. You're going to have a ton of adversity. You're going to struggle for things. And when you have that um, alignment of your personal belief and values with the work that you do, it makes it so much easier to grind through that adversity. And I think that that part is something that um, when you when you finally see that align in your career, it can be an incredibly empowering uh, moment uh, professionally. That's cool. You know, it's actually an irony to what you're doing here because oats are now 
in some ways, displacing animal agriculture, because the irony is that oats were actually the big feedstock for labor animals on on farms and and for uh, horses who are used for transportation as well. In fact, the U.S. used to be a humongous oat producer and even an oat exporter. It was a big part of the agricultural economy. And then uh, in the first half of the 20th century, basically oat production just completely plummeted down to almost nothing, not because people weren't eating oats, but because tractors and cars were replacing horses in farms and cities. And so now oats are a a tiny portion of the crops that are grown in the US. uh, But many of those oats that are, are now being used to actually displace animals. Once again, it's it's quite the irony to see how things come full circle here. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we, the oats uh, can be an incredible part of an agricultural foundation. And we see, you know, they're easy to grow. Uh, globally, uh, they can be grown in Europe, Asia, North America, both the United States and Canada. They can be grown uh, as an incredible rotation crop uh, with other agricultural inputs. So it doesn't force uh, those farmers to you know, kind of say this or that. Um, so they can grow with corn and soy in, co- in a complementary status. Um, and so we do a ton of work, both in the United States and in Europe, around thinking, you know, this is you know, part of your procurement strategy, but it intersects directly into our sustainability ambitions about how are we working with our uh, oat suppliers on, you know, both, yeah, we need availability, abundant availability of high quality food grade oats um, that aren't treated with glyphosate that, um, you know, in the United States, we have a fully gluten-free uh, supply chain. You know, so there, there's pieces there that we really work closely with them on and, you know, that we can u- seek to use that position to both increase the penetration of food grade oats in the agricultural market, um, but also shape the way that that occurs to be in line with our sustainability ambitions over the longer haul. So it that part is, uh, you know, definitely a, a core passion of the business and, um, you know, it fits really well within the broader agricultural footprint here in North America. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm eager to get into that because I know oat harvests have been suffering uh, from drought lately, but yeah. I, I do just want to comment on one thing because I was confused about this. You mentioned a gluten-free supply chain. Just, just to be clear for the listener, oats don't have gluten in them. Uh, Correct. However, sometimes they touch manufacturing equipment that had also previously touched something that had gluten in it. And so the the percentage of people who that would actually affect is infinitesimally small. It's important for, (laughs) it's important for those people. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, But yeah, you know, but we're not taught. I mean, you know, despite whatever the realities of, of gluten being a, a fine food are, I just want to be clear, like, this is yeah. not something oats yeah. themselves right oats themselves are inherently gluten-free it is the go-to-market uh sourcing so whether that's the distribution network of taking those oats from the farm to the mill the milling efforts then then the transportation uh footprint to to get it to manufacturers like oatly um you know we go to extra steps um to ensure, and, and, and in North America, thankfully, there is the infrastructure exists within the you know raw material supply chain to be able to source those. We think about, I mean, we think about that very broadly. Of you know, over time, you know, can we achieve the abundance that we want? I mean, we're always striking that balance. We felt that the gluten free certification was really important to the company as we are launching because for those that um, it really does matter, you know, that, that have high degree of gluten sensitivities or allergies. Um, it is a table state. Mm-hmm. And we want, we, if, if you want oat milk to be for everybody, you know, we think, we think, 
you know, very deeply about those topics of allergens and accessibility. And so you're right, the oat itself, uh, very accurately said, is it does not have any oat in it, but it's all of the supply chain infrastructure to get it to market that you have to really um, focus on. Yeah. So speaking of focus, Mike, let's chat just for a moment here because uh, about this issue about market dominance, because you all were mm-hmm. the oat milk market for some time. I mean, there really was not a big difference between saying oat milk and oatly. They were basically one in the same. Mm-hmm. And obviously, as with any time that there is a company that's creating a new space and that's having a lot of success, there's going to be other people who want to come in and, and try to compete in that space as well. And so now uh, people who want oat milk don't have just oatly. They can get Planet Oat or Silk or uh, Chobani. Ha- Actually, I think Chobani, we're used to work, yeah. has their own oat milk. So they do. So, so you know, first, you know, this is obviously, uh, I would say, good for the oat milk market in general, right? Like you want to see an expansion, and you don't want to see one company yeah. controlling everything. Um, at the same time, how does Oatly maintain its dominance there? So, uh, you know, if I'm a skeptic and I say, "Hey, listen, it must not be that hard to make oat milk." Like, what leads, <laughs> you know, what leads a customer to say, "Hey, I'm going to stick with Oatly over something else"? Like, how do you guys intend to yeah. remain the market leader here? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you're right about that proliferation of brands. We've definitely seen that since, um, and we launched in retail in 2018. Um, about a year later in 2019, you started seeing these other brands, um, you know, launch their own oat milk in addition to other offerings they had. That was one of those moments, I think, as a entrepreneur and a builder where you're like, both, it is, you're right, you, like, it's good. It's good for the category. It's good for consumers. There's more options. Uh, There is a tremendous amount of validation in the fact that these massive global incumbents are now choosing to make an oat milk when, you know, they weren't rushing into, I mean, while we, it's nice to say that oat is a dominant format now. I mean, that was very much up for grabs when we started. It's not like they had never heard of an oat milk before. We had a market leading position in Europe. They could have done that well in advance of us launching in the market. They chose not to. They kind of fast follow on our success. And they weren't doing that with other crop formats like flax or pea or other sorts of things that were out there. So it is in the when, when you see that happen. It is a, I, we believe, you know, that's a great thing for category creation. It is also scary when you're a small company trying to grow and scale from scratch. And you're like, oh my gosh, these companies are massive. They have massive incumbent, uh, you know, manufacturing advantages and supply chain advantages and sales team advantages. And so you just have to, it, it really is one of those cases of, um, you know, what can I control, right? I'm going to try to work my hardest. My team is going to try to work the hardest on the things that we can control. And there's parts that I can't control in the market in terms of what competition would do um, and things like that. Um, so so, the, and so, so let me ask you then from an yeah. individual consumer, let's say myself, like why should I yeah. buy Oatly as opposed to any other oat milk brand? Yeah. So I, I do think, I mean, you could say like, well, it must not be that hard to make this product. I do think that from my experience that I'm obviously quite biased at this, it's very, it is very difficult to make great oat milk. And uh, we, with the the process and the craft that we've built um, over the past, you know, decades of doing just this, um, you know, we are, again, you know, I, I work for the company. So of course I would say this, but I, we, have, we have a great product and we hear that from consumers that they like, they connect with the taste uh, texture, they connect with the brand 
and the resonance of that and the, um, the, the kind of, uh, positioning, they connect with our, um, our, our kind of stated values in that. And that this is the only thing we do. And we have a reason for why we do it. They also really gravitate. I mean, a big part of our strategy has not just been the grocery store shelves, although that's a big part of it. But, you know, that first kind of taste experience that people get in a coffee shop or, you know, at their local, you know, when they're traveling for work at a hotel or something like that, the, the ability to build that um, taste standard, um, you know, where people like kind of then judge, I mean, people are still figuring out their approach on plant-based foods, plant-based milks. And so when someone has that grace first experience, it really sets the, the standard that they come back to. And so we've tried to have a really balanced um, go-to-market strategy with a mix of on-premise focus and kind of traditional retail. And that creates this um, kind of trial cycle where people discover it establishes uh, their pre- a preference and then they're rewarded when they come to a grocery store. And yeah, of course, like sometimes people are going to try, you know, you're going to shop around different brands. Um, but, um, you know, we feel like the way we set that up of the things you don't waver on product quality, um, brand characteristics and where people start in the standard that's established, um, it puts us in a really good spot for that, for continued growth. Cause it's still very early as far as we've come. Um, oat is, much smaller than almond milk as a segment, but growing quite significantly. Um, you know, we have, you know, relatively much lower household penetration relative to plant-based milk as a whole. And, so, and, and, you know, the majority of our consumers, even, you know, though we've been working at this for five years, you know, the majority of our consumers have just tried it for the first time in the last 12 months. And so we, we still feel like we have a long, long way to go. Um, even as much as we've done to, to continue to bring people into this kind of corner of the plant-based uh, milk universe. And um, that's what we, that's what we focus on all the time. Yeah. It, well, it, it's definitely impressive. And one of the things that I have been impressed by about your strategy is this idea of building your own plant. So I know that Oatly mm. is, is building a plethora. I think I read it's building nine new plants right now for yeah, global. Yep. And so that's obviously betting really big that oats are the future here. And so, you know, some companies just rely on co-manufacturers. They don't want to set up all of the headaches that are entailed with yeah. trying to, you know, spend tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars to create your own factory. So why is that? Why go the route of building your own plants as opposed to just using co-manufacturers like so many others do? Yeah. I mean, and, and our strategy will continue to be a blend of, and we're certainly in the United States. I mean, we got started with partner manufacturers um, who helped us and, and continue to help us. And so over time, what, you know, as our business grows, you know, we, we have to start to integrate other options. And, and the reason you do that, and, and you mentioned a few of them in, in the question, you know, one, just from a capacity standpoint, there, you know, the, these incredible partners that we have on the manufacturing side, they have other businesses and clients and things like that too. And, you know, we feel very, very strongly about the future of the, of our brand and the, and the oat milk segment. And so we need access um, to that capacity and the flexibility um, that we have by controlling the systems there. We can furthermore, I mean, again, I, I do firmly believe that it is, uh, quite difficult to make great oat milk. And we have a specialized manufacturing process for how we process the oats where the control and ownership over that um, puts us in a really advantaged position. 
Um, the last piece, you know, we, it, 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 again, capacity, flexibility, the ownership over the oat process. And, and, and we do take the allergen piece really seriously. We have great quality systems that we implement um, with our partners. Um, thankfully, you know, we have never had a, a product recall here in the United States. We, we test everything, dairy, nuts, um, gluten rigorously, because that is a big part of consumer trust. One way that we can, um, you know, even seek to alleviate that concern even further is by having a dedicated facility that, you know, there's never any cow's milk in the pipes at all. They just never even entered the facility, uh, you know, that there's never been, uh, you know, a nut that, you know, has entered the, the door on the, on the manufacturing side. And so that can give us even more peace of mind for some of those bigger, riskier topics as the business scales mm-hmm. to, to, you know, seek to have the majority of our products, United States and, and, and internationally start to go through these like allergen free facilities. Um, that's a big. So let me ask you then about peace of mind, uh, because the oat markets lately, um, I'm sure as everybody listening uh, is keenly following the oat markets. So you probably already know this, but of course, uh, you know, oats have declined. So uh, it pretty dramatically, there's a big drought that caused the US oat harvest to decline 39%. Canada had similar numbers. Mm -hmm. Oat prices are at an all time high. So the last time they were at a high was in 2012, when they were 389 a bushel $3.89 per bushel. USDA is now forecasting 2022 pricing to be even higher than that all time high looking at about $4.20 a bushel. So this is obviously a major problem to have your your star ingredient just skyrocketing in price and not much that you are able to do about it. You can't control the weather. You can't control what happens with the oat markets at all. So would you ever consider exploring alternative lines? So if you look at a company like Silk, it's a plant-based milk brand that has almond milk, coconut milk, soy milk, oat milk, and so on. Has Oatly considered diversifying so that it would be inoculated against some of these crops that uh, are, you know, going in the wrong direction right now? Yeah. I mean, well, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, it, it is the, I mean, we chose oats for the reason, not, I mean, yes, abundance in that they're not just able to be grown in a very small, you know, portion of a particular climate geography. You can grow them in Finland and Canada and Poland and Australia. You can grow them everywhere. So, you know, abundance, you know, globally, and you're, you're spot on on the, the North American market, but also because of the other components around their nutritional content, um, the environmental impact uh, in the sourcing of them. And so, it, it it does really. I mean, we we focus only on oats. We do we go way even further than what we've even shown in terms of looking at um, you know oat genomes and other varietals of oats that over time can I think help us to even make the product even better. We think the product's great and it can also get better. Um, so you know we we uh, kind of scan the market all the time looking at other crops, not necessarily because we're going to launch a sub brand, uh, which would be very hard to launch Oatly branded uh, soy milk. So I'm not even just thinking purely of the uh, consumer, <laughs> well, but, uh, like the consumer challenge might be difficult. No, but in fairness, it could be a blend. I mean, you know, right now you can buy blends of soy yeah. and almond milk. I mean, it could be oats that let's say an oat milk that happens to also have as an ingredient some other product whether it's yeah. some, you know I, I don't know what it would but be but we uh, also i mean it's a again when you put the values at the center of what we're trying to do um i would say that that's not something we 
are exploring at the moment. Sure. Um, you know, and mainly because there is a, a, a tremendous amount of power and clarity in just that simple adherence to the, the, the values that we have. Yeah. Now you mentioned the, 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 it is an irony that you have, um, you know, the impact of climate change creating, you know, kind of 20 year drought conditions that lead to a, uh, a challenging food grade oat market in a year. So this is where the, the shift towards plant-based foods, like we think this is really important. And, you know, there are, you know, drought cycles and, uh, you know, commodity scarcities that occur in markets from time to time. We've, we've kind of discussed those. I worked at a, you know, We've seen that within the dairy industry at times where the market is uh, constrained and prices go up because they don't have enough uh, raw material input. And and then, you know, the supply demand curve kind of relevels. And so we have very, very integrated, deep relationships with our agricultural suppliers that we lean on. And, you know, we the there's new crops, obviously, that are in the ground right now. And um, we feel like that market is both expanding um, with the just sheer acreage of food grade oats. Um, there's increased milling investment that's going on. And so we feel very good about the long-term horizon um, on that, even while we work through, you're right, a, a very challenging 2021 crop cycle. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely challenging, uh, not just for oats, but for a, a lot of crops, even even the folks who are sure. relying on, yeah. on pea protein are really suffering because of that drought and pea, you know, yes. pea, pea prices have skyrocketed as well. Um, so uh, let me ask you then, so if you're not actively exploring uh, oats plus other types of milks or other um, or even non-oat products, I know that you all have expanded though way beyond just milk. So you all are doing, right. you know, you've got oat milk, you've got oat ice cream, oat yogurt. What other products are we going to see and are they all going to be dairy replacements? I ask, for example, there's a, a company in Finland that is doing what they call pulled oats and it is their answer to plant-based meat. They're making a, an oat-based alt meat right now. And so might we see Oatly get into other uses of oats that aren't even dairy replacements? Uh, yeah. So we... Um uh, the, the name of the game for us in, you know, again, delivering on the mission is, is around conversion, um, from cow's milk dairy. And so, um, you know, that kind of sets the field of play that we focus the majority of our time on. I'll, I will say we have an incredibly, um, you know, impactful innovation team, some of whom have been here for, you know, 20 years, know more about oats than I could ever possibly learn in my entire lifetime and the application of them and, and how to create these products. And so, you know, the, the European market being more advanced further along has always been a really good roadmap for what we look at in the United States, where we look at some of those core ideas and then we always seek to adapt them, um, to, to win, you know, whether that's taste preference, you know, product format, um, to win in the U S I think our frozen portfolio is a great example of it where, they had good products in Sweden that I always liked when I went over there to visit, but we took that and we looked at, well, what can we do here? And so we have soft serve mix uh, that is, uh, you know, the official soft serve uh, of the Chicago Cubs and the Texas Rangers and the New York Yankees. Um, you know, we have ice cream bars that we just launched this spring that are like delicious and decadent and indulgent. And then we have really tasty pint flavors too. So we're building the, you know, applications in this market. And then we look at, you know, things around fermentation. What other items can we do where it, it is helpful to not boil the ocean of all the things it could be. But if we were a cow's milk dairy company, what are the types of items that we would make? Um, and, and can we, can we get people a credible uh, option to make that switch 
that's good for themselves, good for the planet, and they think tastes good. And like, oh wow, this is this is good. I don't miss the alternative. Um, that's that's the goal, right? So I mean, if you think about it, you know, there are some products of which there are a lot. So milk is one example in the plant based yeah. space. But on cream cheese, it's a way way smaller smaller universe of options out there. I mean, it's something Definitely. that you know maybe there's a a Oatly cream cheese in the making. Um, or, or we've had Oatly spreads in your in Europe for years. We've had Oatly spreads in like little containers that you would spread on, you know, toast or bread. And um, those products are uh, delicious. Yeah. And so for, uh, you know, within the U.S. business, you know, there's a balance of, yeah, you know, we have all of those ambitions. We we have an incredibly talented team. You also have to balance that with, you know, where the business, you know, the team is at, the executional risk in the scale journey that we're on. So we, we feel like, again, We've done an awful lot. We've been really busy over the past five years, but we have so much more to go in terms of where that opportunity is and the global expertise and other markets, whether it's, you know, the pace of innovation in China is incredible. They're, de- they're developing and launching new items at a rate that um, w- within our team there that I, I'm just so impressed by. And we can learn from all of that and then apply it for to win here in the US. Yeah. So, I, and I'm going to just presume that the answer is no based on your silence to the oat-based meat question. It's not something that you all are exploring. Yeah, I mean, I, the other piece that's really key to us, and we talk, it was kind of what I alluded to when we asked about the building of the factories, the oat processing of taking the whole oat kernels and turning them into this liquefied base, that is kind of the the core um, you know, foundation for the the majority of our products today. That's not that we don't look at other things. And I think we have the we have the brand and we have the technical expertise to um, apply them for other future things. So it's like we wouldn't ever say never on any of those things. But I think the core mandate for the company is around that conversion versus dairy. Um, using the oat base expertise that we have, and then as we grow, certainly we we you know lots of different doors could present themselves. But you know, I don't know that I see that in the in the near term. Okay, all right. Well, uh, there are a lot of things that you can do with oats. You guys could be like the George Washington Carver, <laughs> but not for peanuts, but for oats. And, and yeah, and, <laughs> right, right. So you mentioned there's just a, a lot of room for growth, and so I, I do want to ask you about the stock price and and its growth because mm. as anybody watching knows that you all had this tremendously successful. IPO, but have since uh, dropped about 80% in your value. Now, you're not the only one who has done this. Uh, two-thirds of the companies that IPO'd in the last couple of years are trading beneath their uh, IPO offering price. And it's yep. especially in the plant-based uh, market, other companies like Beyond has gone on a somewhat similar similar trajectory with a spectacular IPO and growth and then has has really fallen in the last half year or so. E- even uh, much smaller, but the very good food company, which is a Canadian publicly traded plant-based meat company, has also uh, really taken a hit on its stock price. So first, let's, let me mm-hmm. ask you why. Like, What do you think are the reasons to see 80% of the stock price drop? I, I know you all were attacked by these short sellers. Is How much of it was that? Is there something else that is happening. And then I want to ask, you know, what do you think it will take to bring this back up, you know, to go to where the yeah. idea was? I mean, I think, you know, it, as you mentioned, it's a incredibly challenging market environment right now. But for us, I mean, we, we try to not 
I mean, again, I mentioned before when we were talking about new pro, you know, competitors launching products in the United States, there's pieces that you can control and there's pieces that you can't. You know, we try not to let any of the stock price fluctuations distract us as a management team and an organization. The fundamentals of the business, our strategy for growth has been very consistent um, with what we shared when we IPO'd. And we continue to, uh, you know, grow. We see demand for our products, uh, you know, continue to grow uh, across markets, United States, Asia, Europe. Um, and we feel like we're, we're continuing to lay the foundation to capture that opportunity, create a great business um, that also creates a uh, large impact. So, you know, again, it's it's something that it's certainly a, a, a challenging market. You, know, you obviously prefer not to see that sort of volatility, but, you know, we try to, you know, stay focused, I'd say on the task at hand of what are we doing here? What's the point of the product and, and really work every day on strengthening the fundamentals of the business and continue to drive um, that growth strategy. And you think that the CapEx spending on the plants is basically the investment in that future growth, essentially, that that will be like a way yeah, to I mean, out, outcompete competitors there. I think it's it's a piece that is core to allowing us to uh, capture that demand. Um, we need the we need the capacity. We need the flexibility um, to be able to build for that future um, demand for this. You know, continue to expand pie of um, people looking for great plant based options. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you all do make some great plant based options, and I've really enjoyed them as have my wife. So we both thank you for that, Mike. I, I do want to also ask you here that. You have gone through quite a journey from the Navy to the food industry to now being an executive at one of the you know hottest brands in the food space. And uh, assuredly, there are a lot of things that have benefited you, whether you learned about them during business school or maybe afterwards that you think would be useful for anybody else. So is there any resource out there that has, you have personally benefited from, Mike, that you think, hey, maybe somebody who's listening to this podcast might also get some use out of this? Yeah. So I, I tried to put some, th I know that that's a, an area of kind of paying it forward that you, you do with, with many of your guests. And so I tried to put some thought into that ahead of time. I think on the, uh, it's interesting on the, the reading side, um, because uh, I used to consume tons of nonfiction and biographies and business books. And I've, I've basically fully gotten out of those in the last like two to three years, not just because it was hard to find like the relevancy, but mm -hmm. I feel like you need to have something that really, I, I've shifted honestly to like, paperback murder mysteries like i need something that's <laughs> nice. a release it, it sounds crazy like stuff you see at i mean uh you know not that i yeah. didn't enjoy reading those other ones but like stuff you see at the airport when you're walking by oh. like yeah that's that's a nice little uh recharging thing i will say that the book that um and it was grounded in a class and a speech that he gave one of my harvard business school professors um clayton christensen who's well known in entrepreneurship he wrote a book called how will you measure your life um uh, back in 2012, um, it's available on Amazon that I've read a few times over the years. And I was certainly familiar with the content from a speech that he had given while I was there um, at HBS. And the the fundamental premise of that is, you know, thinking, and it it's interesting also in the context of businesses, that sometimes the things that are easiest to measure um, you know, numerically, it's like a, a salary or a bank account or a stock price um, are not the most 
important personally to your uh, health, your satisfaction. Um, and so it's you have a tendency sometimes to discount the um, elements that are less easily measured. And I think that when you really, you, know, you have to take time to take stock um, of not, are you over uh, leverage over balanced um, on those. That's that was one of the pieces I really took away from that because I find myself in that trap all the time of you know things that are easily measured. Um, you tend to overweight in terms of their importance um, at times, and so you have to be really disciplined of thinking that through in in more depth. And so that was a great read. It's a pretty uh, small, you know, short, short book, but that when you're on this entrepreneurial journey and you're pouring yourself into these companies and you're building and you're thinking about the future, um, you know, to really take stock of uh, that measurement question, um, it was really impactful for me. Cool. Well, I, I do like to read nonfiction, but like you, I also enjoy reading a good amount of fiction, which I, I think actually yeah. has like a, a utilitarian benefit. We could talk about that some other yes. time. But, you know, interestingly, yeah. uh, it does seem like most of the books that have had the biggest impact in the world, like the biggest impact on the readers, do often tend to be fiction. So, uh, you know, if you look Amazing. if you look at even like The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which led, which is a, yeah. a novel from the early 1900s that led to federal legislation to books like 1984 and Fahrenheit 451 or, or books on the right like Atlas Shrugged and uh, Fountainhead and others like these are all novels that seem to have a, a bigger impact and I say this as somebody who has written a nonfiction book myself <laughs> um, that mm, uh, I, I think that, that fiction probably uh, often has a more transformative effect in the world and so for that reason I'm going to recommend to you Mike that you check out uh, a novel that I read about I don't know maybe a year or so ago that I absolutely loved. I thought it was so good. It's called Tender is the Flesh by Agostina Baztareca. And this book was okay. reviewed in the New York Times. It has thousands of ratings on Amazon. And it is, it's not just like some you know esoteric book that I found. It is a popular book. And it is stellar. And the basic, I love it. the basic premise of it is get ready to, uh, to have some gut churning here. You know, everyone eats humans. Uh, nobody calls them humans, but everybody is eating humans. And one guy who works at this slaughterhouse for humans decides that he's going to take one of them home. And uh, I, I, I won't ruin anything else, but it is, uh, in my view, a 10 out of 10 book. So definitely check out Tender is, Tender is the Flesh by Agostina Bastareca. Um I will do it. Good, good. Let me know how it goes. And we'll include a, a, a link to that book, as well as to uh, Quentin Christensen's book that you mentioned, Mike, in the show notes for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. So finally, let me ask you then uh, something that I ask every guest on this show, which is uh, what other company ideas might you have? So you're busy working on oat milk right now, but surely somebody who has gone to Harvard Business School and has done a lot in his life has some ideas for what else the world needs. So what company does exist right now that you wish existed oh man well first off i would say that again like these are the ones where you're a little bit nervous about saying like oh i read like fiction paperback in this like biz like business high profile podcast i was like i appreciate that validation that you read the, <laughs> the fiction pieces too i i think you know there's i have uh well i don't know the on the, on the ideas that don't exist the first off i would say in the journey that we've had with oatly um the number of times where you know there's such a you know sometimes a pull to be the branded item the ones you know making items that show up on shelves i would always encourage people to think about um, 
can you fund fund a business um, that enables other companies uh, to go uh, mine for gold or you know seek that gold rush? So how are you a uh, platform enabler, whether it's on raw material sourcing, contract manufacturing, quality systems uh, to help companies achieve that next level? I think there's so much value that can be created from that level of expertise. It's sometimes a little bit under um, appreciated because you're not the one that has the name on the product that goes out there into the world. But I always feel like that there's, there's so there's such great business relationally driven um, successes that can come from um, those kind of support uh, businesses. And so that is my honest advice, my uh, less boring advice on this. And this I, I came up with an idea. Um, and if somebody, you know, somebody can send me an email if they want to do this with me. Um, uh, you know, years ago, I came up with a business for uh, like a reinvented drive-in movie theater hmm. idea, okay. which has like, I've seen a rise of that in yeah. like COVID post, you know, pandemic stuff where yeah, I've seen movie it. drive-ins are coming back. Like the, but it was basically an intersection of like urban, uh, urban, like real estate y- utilization with a like social movie experience because I love the movies. I like one of my best indulgences is going to the movies here in New York city on like a Saturday morning by myself to like <laughs> sit there and like in the dark and, um, and enjoy it. I, I, um, I, I, but I think I, those I, social I, experiences are cool. When, when I think of somebody, go going, ahead, go ahead. When, when I think of somebody going to the movies by themselves on a Saturday morning, I just think of them like crying themselves to sleep in the movie. Yeah. So I realize that's well, not what you're doing. Unless, <laughs> unless you're watching, yeah. unless you're watching fast <laughs> and the furious nine, okay. in which Got case it. you're having a delightful time yes. uh, when it's like 90 degrees outside in New York and hot as heck. And you just want to go sit in like the cool dark and just like take it a summer blockbuster. Uh, I have gotten over the idea that that is a weird thing to do. Okay. It is uh, a like a, a delightful form of self care uh, sometimes. Great. And so my idea was how could you reinvent the movie going experience to be more of like uh, interactive and social um, in uh, and potentially take advantage of underutilized and unused uh, urban real estate options. Very good. So um, and, and that's specific enough that and weird enough that I don't know anybody wants to do that. Uh, they can have that one. So. <laughs> oh, that's very cool. Well, you generously invited people, Mike, to email you. So what is the email address? If somebody wants to email you for any reason, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, they could send me a note on LinkedIn. I'll try to get back to them on that. Okay. Um, you know, if you, if, if you say, if you, anybody wants to go uh, figure out the future of drive-in movie theater uh, experiences, uh, I'm down to brainstorm on that. Uh, they can send me a note on LinkedIn and, and uh, I'll, I'll hit them up. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I hope that Tender as the Flesh gets made into a movie and we can go to a drive-thru together here, Mike. <laughs> we'll, we'll have a good time. I love it. Uh, I'll go Saturday morning. I don't care. I'll do it. Uh, all right. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for all your good work, Mike. I, I definitely appreciate it. And I am I'm hoping for a great 2022 for Oatly here. And I am grateful to you for chatting and for all that you're doing to help build a more sustainable food supply. So we appreciate it and hope you have a rest of a great year here. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.